This time on the Internet Computer Weekly, if you can call this podcast that, maybe it would be a little bit more honest to call this the Internet Computer Periodically or something like that. I might have to rename this given that I've barely podcasted in the last two months. But for now, on the Internet Computer Weekly, I'm joined by Kyle Langham, who is a stalwart of the Internet Computer community. In particular, Kyle's been doing a ton of deep tokenomic analysis. And many of you may be familiar with his newsletter. The reason I wanted to invite him on the show was to get an understanding of Kyle's methodology and some of his deeper insights. So with that as some context, Kyle, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Well, first, thanks for having me, Arthur. And then uh, I have a background in data science. Uh, That's what I do for my professional career. I work for a vaccine company, but really got into crypto probably around 2018, 2019, mostly on Bitcoin. And then, uh, you know, last year stumbled upon the internet computer and really just fell down that rabbit hole pretty quickly to the point that now it's kind of consumed most of my waking attention. (laughs) I don't think you're alone in that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What attracted you to it? It's funny because the internet computer is not exactly one of the most, I guess, well-publicized projects in crypto. So it's interesting that it attracted your attention rather than one of the other major base layers. Well, I think what first got my attention was you see the name internet computer and you think that is probably the worst name for search engine (laughs) optimization, right? You can't Google that. But then just the fact that they didn't choose a flashy name and the fact that, you know, internet computer protocol kind of suggests something different than a financial layer. And so that's what got me researching it. Once I started researching, the things that really caught my attention was, I mean, first of all, the long-term view, you know, everything from having a 20-year vision to encouraging ICP holders to stake for eight years. That's pretty unique in crypto where long-term is a four-year halving cycle, right? The other thing is just that I have a belief that, you know, we have a thousand tokens and that at some point the crypto space has to consolidate, either merge or, you know, the majority of the tokens just won't be in existence. And so when you really think about like a differentiating factor, what the internet computer is trying to do is so far outside of what every other crypto project is trying to do that it, from an investment standpoint, has a real appeal there. And then just the problems they're solving, right? I mean, I see in my work, security issues, you know, the fact that the internet is based off of open protocols that were developed 30 or 50 years ago. And this probably doesn't get a lot of attention, but the idea that we can have a protocol for a new internet that actually can extract some of the economic value Because what you see today is that because those open protocols for the internet don't extract any value, the big tech have been able to essentially coerce that to where they can extract all the economic value of the internet. I think there's a need for an organization or a group of people that can basically dictate those protocols in a way that can more evenly distribute the value of the internet. Right. I see what you're saying. So by virtue of the fact that, say, Facebook and Google, et cetera, have inserted themselves in between the user and these basic functions like internet hosting that uses, you know, say, the LAMP stack, for example, you've got all of this great free technology that's effectively being sold to people who don't really have an option to go anywhere else because the entire internet 
space has been captured by these behemoths. Yeah, it's been a few years since I read about this, but Microsoft famously had a strategy that I think most of big tech implored, which was you swamp an open source project so much so that you can kind of direct that open source project in a certain direction that allowed Microsoft to then, you know, extract all of that value. So, you know, I have this like this thing that you would consider to be benevolent, an open source software project that big tech is able to basically say, okay, we're going to put a bunch of developers on there. So that way this has no choice but to move into the direction that we want it to move into. In that direction, of course, is going to be beneficial to their shareholders, not to the internet at large. Right. So even free software winds up becoming co-opted just by the largesse of those few players. Explain to me how it changes. I mean, I can assemble this partly in my head, but I really like the way you brought this up. How does the fact that we have the ability to extract economic value, how does that change that formula? Well, then at that point, you have a group of people who have a different set of incentives. So right now with the current like open source and open protocol build of the internet, there's not an incentive for people to invest heavily in those open protocols or even, you know, basically try to have a vision that can be more mass appealing or mass beneficial. But once you, you know, you look at like the internet computer and you now have a, you know, anyone who has the ICP token, particularly anyone who staked it, now has an incentive to expand that technology base and not let further things downstream extract all the value from that protocol. I see what you're saying. So it incentivizes generating more value at the base layer rather than trying to capture an independent base layer and build value on top of that to the exclusion of anyone else's participation. Yeah, I think that's a good explanation. There's probably people out there in the industry who are screaming at their computers right now because I'm getting this wrong. But in general, yeah, that's kind of, it seems like it's an evolution towards a more bare internet in which it's harder for a few players to basically like extort that technology base. And then in addition to that, you also have this just combining blockchain as a protocol for hosting websites and essentially as something that people can build off of. It unlocks a lot of value. You know, and you see that right now with Discover, right? They do a token drop, the OG token drop that, you know, once it began trading was instantly worth, you know, thousands of dollars. And that really is one of those value add aspects of the internet computer that you don't get with the legacy stack. This framing reminds me of something that I discussed with the guys over at Urbit who have similar aspirations, although a totally different approach. And that was that effectively the entire world relies on Unix, but there are no Unix developers out there. No one knows how to maintain the Unix kernel or not enough people to plug the security holes that are being discovered on this in an ongoing basis. And because there's no monetization, there's no incentive to even maintain what is at the core of a product, even though it's fundamental to all enterprise computing. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. And where there's a lack of incentive, it almost opens up doors for people who have an incentive to swoop on in there, which is what big tech has done. With that as background, can you tell us a bit about your work analyzing the tokenomics of the internet computer? Because I feel like this is a perfect dovetail for that conversation. Yeah, I mean, that's something that really fascinates me. It's true about blockchains in general, and certainly true about the internet computer, is that, you know, if you just think in, you know, basic econ 101 supply and demand terms, you know, usually 
both sides of that supply and demand equation are unknowable, or at least challenging to get at. With the internet computer, you can really get at the supply side. You know, I can tell you how many ICP are going to be coming off the NNS, you know, in the next 30 days or the next, you know, nine months to a pretty certain, you know, high level of confidence. And then you can easily measure the demand of the internet computer through the interesting tokenomics, right? Where you can see how many transactions are occurring, whether or not that's increasing over time, you know, and if it's increasing, what's that, what's, you know, the second derivative of that? You can see, you know, how much ICP we're burning for, you know, as a measure of the use of the network, you know, are we burning in certain subnets more than others? And then what applications are running in those subnets? I mean, you can really get deep into the data and understand what is going on. And then as a person who loves data that, you know, you take a concept that I'm fascinated about and you apply it to what I'm pretty good at, or at least somewhat decent at, better than other things at in my life. And yeah, so I just love to try to figure out what data is out there to get get at and analyze it and try to help the community understand like, hey, where are we at? and Where are we going? Interesting, because... Talking about the rate of ICP burn as a measure for the use of the network, that needs to be counterbalanced against the massive increase in burn that we've seen recently with the launch of Sonic's XTC token, right? Because, you know, a ton of ICP is being burned to create cycles that are being wrapped and placed in this liquidity pool on Sonic. And by measuring ICP burn by all subnets, you'd have to remove ICP burn from that subnet from your calculation to understand actual activity, right? You have to apply some specificity. Yeah, and actually, and that's one of those use cases where it's pretty simple because Sonic is burning everything from one account. You know, so I have an algorithm that runs that'll basically pull down all the transactions that resulted in burning ICP. And then I can just filter, either filter in or filter out that one Sonic account and you know, so if I wanted to remove that and just determine like, hey, is the ecosystem as a whole doing something that's actually not too challenging. But I think that is a point that I would say, at least my impression is we're with nine months post Genesis. And in terms of the burn for computation, that's probably been less than I would have expected at this point. And in addition to that, the burn for Sonic, what they did in just, I mean, what, two or three weeks was just phenomenal, right? 80% of like all the burned ICP has been burned by Sonic during their first couple of weeks of the launch. So those are two things where it's kind of been surprising. I've been disappointed and surprised on the upside. But it really, you know, when you talk about DeFi, that it shows that DeFi could be the cause of deflation for the ICP token. Yeah, I suppose DeFi is everything, right? And when you talk about, you know, the lack of actual ICP burn as a measure for utilization of the internet computer. <laughs> the primary reason for that has to be the fact that we do not have rich DeFi primitives. Yeah, and it's hard to say because I would consider like Discover a successful product right now and District and OpenChat certainly are, have launched and I think have had success, but you haven't seen that parabolic growth in the, the burn for computation that you would expect. And so I think that that's going to be one of those ones where it'll just be a linear, steady over time maybe slightly start to get parabolic, but you're never going to, I wouldn't forecast in the next like five years seeing some crazy amount of ICP getting burned. And I think a lot of that has to do with just the fact that it's rather cheap to host your application on the internet computer. And in addition to that, I believe the ICP price will go up. And so at that point, you're burning even less ICP 
to fund your application. So yeah, that has been surprising. Yeah, interesting. This is a really unfair question. But do you know how much people have paid in total for hosting on the internet computer? Uh, well, I know back in November, District put out on Twitter that in their first, what, four or five months, they spent less than 100 US dollars to host district.app. And so that would have been like two ICP. I mean, by now they've probably done like $200, $300. But so, I mean, that's a pretty low amount given that they have a, you know, a working MVP out there. Yeah, it's interesting, especially if you compare that to what it would cost to use Amazon Web Services. You know, just the cost of setting them up is extremely high. And then you find yourself locked into these, you know, multiple subscriptions to multiple services. We were talking a while ago about how I was overdue on a charge on Amazon AWS, and I'd forgotten about it. And I went back and discovered that I was overdue on this charge 18 months later, and they'd charged me a 60 cent penalty every month. And they wanted me to pay each different penalty a separate time with my credit card. So it was going to be, you know, 18 transactions. And so I just, I mean, I never did it. And I presume I'm continued to be billed to this day. You know, I've probably got 50 charges there now. And so just how cumbersome it is to use Amazon Web Services versus something that you can just upload your code to and run it and not have to worry about these Baroque billing methodologies. And if it's that cheap as well, you know, that tells you everything you need to know about the price competitiveness of the platform, I suppose. But also, it's not very promising if we're looking for that to be a deflationary force. Right, right. What's funny about that Amazon example is that, I mean, they're probably paying a, you know, 15 or 30 cent transaction fee for every credit card payment. So they're basically, you're just giving your money to Visa in the end, if you were to pay that. But yeah, I mean, you're touching on something. The head of the Open Chat Project, I remember hearing an interview with him, and I want to say he said it was like, there's two developers on that, or, or developer and then another one half time or something. And so when you think of like the total cost of a project, the hosting is probably on the less important side or less meaningful side, and the labor is really where you're going to get hit. And so, you know, when you compare the uh, internet computer versus, you know, meeting a team of full stack developers to do something in the legacy world, you know, I'm outside my domain, so I may be wrong here, but I would imagine that there's going to be incredible cost savings from not needing as many developers to create your application. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, of course, you need those developers that actually build the thing in the first place, which is the challenge we have right now. But yeah, eventually, absolutely. Okay, turning this into a, like a P&E analysis, right? Let's say, you know, 10 years from now, there's 5% seniorage annually, right, of ICP. Let's say that the internet computer is valued overall at $100 billion. That would mean that in order to avoid dilution, there would need to be $5 billion worth of computation taking place on the platform, you know, so that $5 billion worth of ICP can be burned, right? Yes, in a strictly ICP mint versus burn aspect. But I think one of the things you could consider, so if you take the example of like Entropop, where they're doing, let's say, 150,000 ICP transactions per month, in order for that to be sustainable or for that to be efficient, you have to have a certain amount of that ICP that's more or less like locked into that market, right? Like, it could be, you know, I just sold an NFT and so now I have 10 ICP sitting in my stoic wallet and I'm just going to keep it there until I want to buy another NFT. 
And that's so a 10 ICP, that's not going to really hit the market anywhere, right? That's just going to sit within the Entropot or the NFT little tiny mini bubble. So that's one source that almost is kind of burned as long as that marketplace stays either, you know, the same size or grows. But then the second thing is the staking, you know, so we're seeing, you know, if people stake their ICP, we're seeing that the people who do do that are staking for eight years or four years. They're keeping it locked. And in my mind, that's almost as good as burning because you can be pretty sure that that's taken out of the market for, you know, four years or eight years or even longer. Right. So there's kind of two things going on here, and they both boil down to ICP that is less liquid, shall we say. In the case of eight-year neurons, or we may as well call them forever neurons, because let's face it, if you've got an eight-year neuron that's not unlocking, (laughs) you're never going to unlock it, are you? (laughs) I guess that's what they call the eight-year club, right? So it's one that I belong to myself with 100% locked for eight years. And that is obviously ICP that's never going to hit the market. So there's a bit of a spectrum here of scenarios where ICP has a greater distance to travel before it finds itself on an exchange. That might be it's locked up in a forever neuron like mine or in a liquidity pool on Sonic, for example, or on a marketplace like Entrepot. And then, you know, you could have just, you know, freely held tokens just in a wallet. And then the closest to an exchange is tokens actually on an exchange itself. And I suppose by understanding the distribution of ICP across all of those different liquidity pools, we could understand the potential future liquidity at any given time. Yeah, exactly. And I think even probably more powerful is that future liquidity is probably proportional to the price of the ICP token. Right. So I think you have essentially a marketplace where with a few assumptions, you're going to understand the supply and demand dynamics of ICP. And then if you took the next step, possibly even understand kind of like the price movement that might occur from that. I see what you're saying. So at least the influence that would have on price, I suppose, because we know that these markets are phenomenally irrational, right? Like ICP itself is extremely undervalued. It's trading at a massive discount right now. I was speaking to someone recently, I'm in El Salvador at the infamous Bitcoin beach, El Zonte, and I met a bunch of people and I was like, you know, I work in uh, one of the crypto and ecosystems and they're like, oh, shit coins. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, shit coins, mate, you know, hardcore <laughs> Bitcoin maxis. But they knew all about the internet computer, but to them, they were just like, it looks like another EOS. And I suppose it does really right now. I mean, it very much fits that profile of that massive launch, raising lots of money, massive launch, VC coin, and then not a whole lot in the news. And you know, because it's not really being covered, we're not getting these big numbers, these big DeFi numbers that actually attract headlines. You know, headlines are all about how big is the number that we can put in this thing. And because the internet computer is not attracting those huge numbers, it's not getting that news coverage, and it feels like it's sort of dropped out of circulation. I mean, some people think it's a dead project. And For that very reason, we've got this massive artificial devaluation of the token, while at the same time, all of this ICP is being locked up in these ranging liquidity pools. And as we wait effectively for DeFi to come along and actually give us the headlines that we need to attract investment interest. Yeah. You know, I don't want to offer financial advice, but I mean, what you're saying is, in my opinion, spot on where 
you know, if you think about like a good investment, right, you want something that has high potential future value, but you also want something that you can get at a price so that its present value, you want to get it at such a cheap price compared to its present value that you don't have to have your bullish assumptions play out. I think that's what you have with ICP right now, because a, you know, obviously with the launch, like exactly like you're saying, right, the project kind of went under the news and it was really just the only thing that were coming above on the news was all the FUD around the launch. But you also have this supply dynamic where because of the way that the tokenomics worked at the launch for December, January, February, March and April, those five months, you have a ton of ICP coming off of the NNS. So you have this supply dynamic that's going to end in April, let's say, driving down the price. I mean, you can almost watch it tick for tick when this ICP becomes available. You just watch, let's say, like the ICP ETH pairing drop. So anyways, it does seem like you have this golden opportunity right now for the next maybe month, maybe two months, maybe three months to get in at a what you might consider a way below fair value into a project that, you know, again, I look at it as like the sky's the limit because of it's so radically different than everything else that's being done. I, I like to think of it as, as the asymmetrical bet where there's a real chance it goes to zero, right? If there's never a product market fit where you can see like, here's how the internet computer provides value versus legacy or versus let's say Ethereum or something, it could go to zero. But there's also another perhaps equal percent chance that it goes to a thousand or ten thousand. And so when you look at that asymmetrical bet, it just seems it seems like a phenomenal investment right now. Again, I'm no expert. So if you're trading on my advice, um, good luck to you. <laughs> yeah, right. I know exactly the feeling. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't suggest anyone take my advice either. Although, yeah, well, I mean, I suppose we're both high conviction investors, aren't we? Yeah. I mean, in the investment world, there's a lot of survivor bias, right? Where the only people you hear from are people who took big bets like this and won. You don't hear from the projects that went to zero. And those people don't do podcasts talking about how they lost all their money. So there's also that aspect. <laughs> yeah, right. I suppose we should just be too careful about congratulating ourselves on our own genius, right? <laughs> in your mind, what are some of the most surprising things you've learned from your analysis? So on the supply side, one of the surprising things is that people aren't taking their maturity, right? So if you stake on the NNS, you build up maturity, and then you can either like compound that back into your neuron, or you can take that as ICP and sell it in the market. But it's something like 80% of maturity still hasn't been touched since Genesis. You know, it's just building and building and building. So that's been pretty surprising. I am very surprised that staking for eight years has been the default, you know, it's something like 40% of new neurons are for eight years and locked, which is a pretty phenomenal number. When you think about like, you know, how confident are you even alive in eight years <laughs> kind of deal. And then um, on the demand side, I think what surprised me is the lack of computational burn. And we've talked through that. I will add too, though, that that computational burn, that's something that the governance, right? Anyone who staked in the NNS, that's something that they could change. And what I mean by that is it's possible for once there's a product market fit for the internet computer and you can see essentially the economic value that the internet computer provides that market, you could almost change the dynamics to where you can extract all of that for the ICP holders. You know, so maybe it's something like if DeFi is just absolutely bonkers and Sonic is an IC swap and infinity swap and they're making 
you know, millions and millions of dollars, there would be nothing to stop to say, you know, the internet computer and the NNS participants to say, look, we're going to change these dynamics so that now it costs you more to burn this ICP or to run your website on chain or something like that. I don't know that we're anywhere near that kind of a discussion yet, but so, yeah, so that's the surprise. And then I think the um, explosion of NFTs has really kind of caught me off guard in the last three or four months. I never understood NFTs until maybe the last two months. And they're really, that's probably the use case that's been the most awe-inspiring so far. So where can people go to find more of this analysis, Kyle? Yeah, if you go to uh, Substack, as just kylelangham.substack, I have a free newsletter that I post all this. I also put stuff on Twitter at, at Kyle Langham. So that's L-A-N-G-H-A-M. But yeah, I mean, right now I'm just freelancing it in my part-time and, and putting out this information. I know I speak on behalf of everyone who subscribed to your newsletter that it's very much appreciated. It's always really fascinating. And this has been, I mean, we've had a couple of really great conversations over the last couple of days, but it's great to get some of this recorded so we can get it out there. You know, I do recommend to everyone listening, they subscribe to Kyle's newsletter. It's really probably the most insightful piece of periodical content that's coming out on the internet computer, in my opinion. Kyle, like I said, very much appreciated. I've been Arthur Falls. You've been listening to the Internet Computer Weekly or something like that. I don't know. I'll rename this to be a little bit more honest. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you guys at some indeterminate time in the near future. Cheers. Thanks for listening. The Internet Computer Weekly is part of a larger effort at education, governance and community building we are calling the Cycle DAO. We host a follow target neuron, which is controlled by the voting members of the DAO. This membership is composed of investors, enthusiasts, developers, entrepreneurs, and some ex-Definity folks. We monitor the Definity forum discussions of NNS proposals, and also use community surveys and one-on-one discussions with ecosystem participants to inform our decisions. You can find instructions to follow the neuron at cycledao.xyz. That's C-Y-C-L-E-D-A-O dot X-Y-Z. We have additional content and discussions of our voting decisions in the blog section of the same. If you stumbled across this podcast online, you can subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or any good podcast aggregator. You've been a fantastic audience. Please tune in next week for more great discussions.